Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me your host Zoe Blasky where each week I chat about all things motherhood and well-being. My mission with this podcast is to help you reconnect to you, to feel happier, more joyful, calmer and that little bit kinder to yourself because I think life as a mum in this hectic modern world is hard enough as it is. I believe becoming the happiest, most alive version of ourselves is the most important and inspiring thing we can do for our children. This week's guest really needs no introduction. Philippa Perry has been a psychotherapist for the past 20 years, and I'm sure you know her best-selling book, The Book You Wish Your Parents Had Read, which was published back in 2019. I've been trying to get Philippa on the podcast for a really long time now, so this conversation was a complete joy for me. As I'm sure you can imagine, we had a really wide-ranging chat. But the thing that I think is most important and profound from our conversation is that our children will remind us of what happened to us at that same age. And I just wish that every parent knew this. And the reason I wish they knew it is because I've experienced it myself and how confusing it can be if you don't know what's going on. Jessie, for example, when she turned four, I suddenly started noticing a slight disconnect from her like a distance was growing in our relationship. And it's only because I knew about this from my therapist that I thought, I know what's going on here. What was happening to me at that same age? And I went and unpacked that and did some work around it, did some healing around it. And unbelievably, it felt like another layer of love opened up between Jessie and I, almost like the floodgates of love opened from a blockage that was in our relationship, which was about something that happened to me at that same age. Something, by the way, which was absolutely tiny. These don't have to be big things that can reawaken or re-trigger what happened to us and cause us to be able to not connect how we would want to with our children. And of course, connection and to be seen is all that our children need from us, but stuff gets in the way. And that's really what this episode is about, the profound importance of connection with our children and yet helping us unpack what can get in the way. I think it's a brilliant episode. I am absolutely convinced you're going to love it as much as I did. Here it is. Welcome, Philippa. It's such a delight to be sat with you this morning. Thank you for having me. Well, I was just reflecting the last time that I saw you, I know this isn't in person. I was very lucky to see you sit with who I think is your good friend, Alan de Botton at School of Life Talk. And I was just reflecting how amazing that evening was. I went with friends. We heard you and Alan in conversation. It was very funny that night, I remember. And then my friends and I went for dinner. Just reflecting, like I took that for granted. Going out to a big auditorium, being with an audience, how I miss sitting in an audience. I didn't know that was important. It seems it is. And just taking it for granted that you could go carefree to a restaurant. It's amazing, isn't it? Amazing. And I realised, as you said, one of the greatest joys in my life and re- one of the reasons I live in London in this ridiculously expensive, crowded, smoggy city is I used to go to a couple of talks a week and I was reflecting this morning how I so miss that connection. I so miss it. 
I belong to a sort of little club called Salon London. And every so often they give talks about psychology or art or science. And there's usually three talks in an evening punctuated with much drinks and chat in between. And they say, never mind, we're going online. And I go online, I go, well, this is a bit flat, isn't it? I realised I was only there for the drinks and the people. I didn't know I wasn't that interested in the lectures. Shocking, isn't it? It's so true. And actually, I wanted to start my conversation with you around connection. Because when I read your book, which I've read a lot of times, too many times to mention it's embarrassing. Really what I get from it every time is this message of connection with everyone in our lives, but particularly our children. Yeah. And what I'm so excited to unpack with you, because it's a real passion of mine, is what blocks that connection. Because I'm lucky enough to be in 12-step recovery and I've been in 15 years now. So I've heard thousands of stories of people who've had massive mental health challenges, they've ended up addicts. And what I hear pretty much 99% of the time in these stories is that as they were growing up, there was a lack of connection, particularly emotional connection. This is why I think your book is so exciting and profound and I'm overjoyed at how well it did because it's massively missing from the narrative, isn't it? Of how important emotional connection is in our early years. Yeah, we tend to think it is about what I start the book off with, actually, you know, getting them up, dressing them, feeding them and putting them back to bed. But it isn't. It doesn't really matter if they get up or not, or if they get dressed or not. What matters is emotional connection. And it's easy for us to connect. We're two adult women. We've got things in common. We've got the use of language and all this sort of thing. But It's so important that we begin to connect with the idea of the baby before they arrive and when the baby comes along. And it's difficult because if we haven't been connected with as children, we haven't instinctively got the wherewithal to know how to connect with the baby. So much of it is instinct. But if we have had our own instincts driven from us by the way we were brought up, by the messages we get from society it's more difficult to forge a bond. But we will forge a bond. It just might not be a functional one. In, I think it's the start of one of the chapters, you're asked what's the advice that you would give to a new parent? And you say the single idea, which is so profound, I wish it was on billboards up and down the country, which is that children remind us, trigger is the word you use, of what happened to us at the same age. Yeah. It's so profound because doesn't it explain so much from my experience of my challenges and that breaking connection? Knowing that, I'm like, ah, this isn't about them. It's not about what's going on with them. This is about what it's bringing up in me. me. Yeah, that so happens. I do get asked, what's your piece of advice? You know, obviously there's more than one, but it's the one, it's like whatever age your child is, be it one day or 35, your body will remember what it was like to be that age and the emotions of that age will come up in you and you will tend to project them onto your child. So, for instance, if you were left to cry it out in the night when you were, say, a year old, they might have thought, it's time for you to sleep 
completely, you've got to learn to sleep so we're not going in when you cry. If you can imagine being one year old without language, without understanding, without an idea of the past or the future, you're just in the present and you feel lonely, you feel like you're falling, you feel lost and you just want to be held and no one is coming, that will give you a sort of emptiness inside. And after a while, you will stop crying because it doesn't work. It doesn't bring people, but it won't stop your feelings of loneliness and emptiness. This is what happens when people think, oh, but they're fine. They're sleeping through. Their cortisol levels are just as high as when they were crying. The mum and the dad's cortisol levels have gone right down because it's quiet. So they think all is fine, but it might not be. The body remembers this sort of stuff. And now when we remember, there's two things we do with that. One thing we do is desensitize ourselves to it. So it doesn't matter. We think it doesn't matter. So we desensitize ourselves so we don't feel the pain. Now, the trouble with not feeling our own pain is that it makes us less capable of feeling other people's pain or being able to empathize with them. So that's the sort of, it never did me any harm. Another thing it can do is when you hear the babies cry, you want to run away because it triggers in you that feeling of loss, loneliness, not being connected with emptiness. And it's funny that you should mention the 12-step program because when we just want to cram our bodies with things, be it alcohol, be it food, be it drugs, be it sex addiction or whatever it is, what we're trying to do is fill a void. And the void is because at some point there wasn't this connection that we needed. I'm not talking about one night or two nights, or even maybe you tried sleep training and it was five nights. It's not that. It's when it's happening throughout your life, when it's a formative experience because it happens again and again and again and again because you cry and no one seems to hear you. When you make a bid for attention that isn't responded to. If you think about it now as here we are as adults, right? And we make a bid for attention. We say to our partner, maybe, oh, look at this in the paper. Look, that blah, blah, blah. And we get blanked by them. You know, it doesn't feel great even as adults. So when some kid is going, look at my drawing, look at my drawing, they get blanked or not nowed. Not once. That's fine. But the majority of times, that isn't fine because then they give up. They think the adults are interested. There is so much in that. We call it in 12-step hole in the soul. Oh, I think what fascinates me, I'm really getting deeply interested and passionate about the generational cycles because I've experienced it firsthand and I find it mind-blowing. Like I had a mother who was incredible. She was physically very present, emotionally utterly not there. And I witness, even though I've done a lot of work on that and a lot of healing and I witness it still playing out with my girls. And I think, gosh, if I can see how my mum's mum, I've basically tracked the behaviour back. And it's just fascinating to me how we think we're parenting in the moment, but we're not. And not just parenting, lifing. We think we're lifing afresh as we are, but really everything that has come before us, those 
little traumas, those little lack of achievement, lack of connection are all coming into the moment, aren't they? It must have caused you a lot of pain if your mother didn't seem to be present for you. I had a client once who used to have a recurring dream of an angel without a face. So the angel was there, but had a completely blank face. And they were so very distressed by this dream. And we traced it back to mother was present, but not present. And father yeah. was present, but not present. So they are angels, ethereal, wonderful beings that you haven't got a connection with. And it does form you, that experience. It does. And I feel like with this conversation, it's such a fine line to tread, giving this information, the profound importance of being able to connect emotionally with our children, but also giving it with a sense of non-judgment. Isn't it bloody hard? It is hard. And I to do that. And I also want to say, if you think, oh my God, I was depressed for two months and I didn't look at the baby. We are all human and the baby wants you. Never mind that you get depressed sometimes. The baby still wants you and the child still wants you. And what you can do is you can say to a child who's nine and feels down and doesn't know why, you can go, well, I think it might be because, you know, last year when auntie died, I was just not there for you. And you must have felt so blank because I was so sad at that time that I could only think of me. And there I wasn't there for you. So no wonder you're feeling sad. That could be it. Do you think that's it? You know, you can ask a kid that. And that's what I call a rupture and a repair. We all make mistakes. We all go blank. We all don't honor bids for attention. We're all human. We all make these mistakes. I just think it's important to acknowledge that when we have made a mistake to ourselves, And to put it right, either if the child is old enough by going, it's not you, it's me, (laughs) not so many words. But if the child isn't old enough to go, I don't have to be like this. I can change. I can at least honour half the bids for attention. No one can honour every bid for attention a six-year-old makes. Otherwise, you'd never get out of the door or make the dinner or anything. But we can say... I can see you've made a lovely drawing and I want to look at it properly and I'm going to after I've done this. This is such an important point around validating the reality of what's going on because my experience was there was an awful lot going on in my house growing up, but through no fault of my own, my parents didn't have the tools, so we were just told nothing to see here, smiles all swept under the carpet. And the impact on me is it's taken me however many years, 35 years, to reconnect back with my instincts, with who I am, with what I want. Yes, because you've got these instincts that say something is going on and you're told nothing's going going on. So how do you learn to trust yourself? Well, I didn't. I didn't. And I outsourced my whole life, really, for 35 years, if I'm honest. I'm doing this with my little five-year-old at the moment. Something I still struggle with is I'll be doing something in the kitchen, busy, busy. I've got a one-year-old and a five-year-old and my mind will... It's a mild dissociation and I'll wander off. But what I do... And this is because I've had so much support on therapy is the moment I notice I've done it, it might be seconds, I'll say to my five-year-old, did you just notice that mummy went off somewhere else? Did you? And she'll go, yeah, that was really funny. And I'll say, yeah, I was cooking the dinner. And then my mind was thinking about something that I've got to do at work. 
And the other day she said to me, I did it and I forgot to label it for her. And she went, mummy, you did that funny little daydreamy thing again, didn't you? And I said, gosh, I wasn't present with you, was I? How did that feel? It's so helpful for me as well, because it takes away the self-judgment that I'm not perfectly present with them all the time. I always think it's a great idea to commentate, even if you've got a one-year-old that doesn't talk yet, to commentate on what's happening and what you're doing. I used to do it when I was driving. So I'd go mirror, signal, manoeuvre, you know, whatever I was doing, (laughs) just to sort of keep them in the loop. Makes it a bit less boring, right? (laughs) Well, I don't know if it makes it less boring, but then they know that you are talking to them. And you might think to commentate on what you're doing sounds bonkers, but you can't pay them the one-to-one attention that they might be craving when you're in the car with them or something. So if you commentate on what you're doing, not only will it make you mindful of your driving, but it also brings them in. They're not just shut out because of driving the car. You mentioned it a few times, this word, attention. And I think so often what I've learned from your work is that when our children want our attention, what they really want is our connection. And you say, and I love this, that about putting in that foundation around children being able to trust that when they need that attention, really connection, they get it. And I I have witnessed this and I'm so excited because in my five-year-old, I've always, as best as I can, met her need for attention. And now she is out of all of her little friends, the most independent player. She'll go and play for an hour sometimes on her own. And I think, you tell me, I think that's because I did a good job when she was always wanting me every minute. I was there as best as I could. And I, you know, we had childcare, I had a nanny and I said the same thing, always meet her need because I can see the foundation. It sometimes feels a bit paradoxical because it can feel like if I give in to every bid for attention, she'll become a monster. But the opposite is true. When they're tiny, tiny and the bids for attention are honoured, I'm not saying you fuss over them the whole time when they're being independent, but you get a proper to and fro dialogue going so their bids are on the whole honoured. They can't all be honoured, but on the whole. Then they can rely on you being there when they want you. So they don't have to test. They don't have to test it because it's already tested, it's already solid. So how we train kids to be a pain is not by giving them too much attention, it's by not giving them enough, so they're always wanting more. It's like that hole in the soul thing, isn't it, is there's a need that's not met. And all children are different, sort of like your firstborn might not need much attention, your secondborn might need masses more. Everybody's different in what they need. So Respond to each individual sibling as they come along with what needs they have, because they'll all be different. Just like with our friends, we all know that it's like a different rhythm in the dialogue with each of our friends. Some friends might have, you know, longer intervals between uh, contacts. Some might be there all the time. You find your own rhythm with each person you know. And so it is with each of your children. I think sometimes there's this thing like, what do kids want? How do I talk to my seven-year-old? How do I talk to my 16-year-old? It's sort of like, no, how do you talk to that person? How are you with that person? Rather than what you should do with a certain sort of person. Because they're just as different as all people. Kids are people rather than 
kids are things to be done to. Well, I think that's something that's really changing. I don't know if you'd agree. I think the success of your book indicates to me it is changing, is that we're seeing now definitely the importance of those first five years, but also children as little people. And someone said this to me before I was pregnant, which was super helpful. You would never leave a 10-year-old or even a 15-year-old screaming in their bedroom on their own. You would never, ever, ever do that. It would feel inhumane. But people do it to one week old, two weeks old. And I think seeing our children thinking, what would I do if this was an adult? Like you said with the newspaper, you wouldn't bat it away. You wouldn't ignore it. You wouldn't shame them for feelings. And yet that's what a lot of parenting books, particularly the 80s and 90s, kind of taught us to do, didn't they? And I think we're still recovering from that. Yeah. If you train a baby, train, then that's how they'll learn to interact with humans, train and manipulate. And that's not the sort of people we want on earth, people that want to train and manipulate us. We want collaboration and cooperation rather than winning and losing games of who gets the upper hand. Yeah, and linked to your kid, you'll teach them to be stubborn. So that's not great. Well, yeah, because they learn from watching us, not from what we say. We can say, be kind, but if they witness us being unkind to them, that's really confusing, isn't it? Very confusing. And I wanted to talk about feelings because this is another thing that I get very impassioned about because Naughty Step did such a disservice and even timeouts I feel really strongly about as well because I think my experience is that my feelings weren't validated. Again, I'm not parent shaming my own parents. They're incredible. They just weren't taught about feelings. So how can you give what you haven't got? But I can see now, having done tons of therapy as well, is how monumental me not having my feelings validated was. I think parents always want their kids to be happy. And they want this so much that when you're unhappy, you can be told you're not unhappy. No, you feel fine. No, you're fine. My husband used to ask me, why do you take your temperature when you're ill? You know you're ill. I go, no, I don't. I really don't know I'm ill. I need proof. (laughs) Because I hadn't learned to trust my feelings when I was feeling a bit off. You know, I'd say, feel my head, feel my head. So we're born with a great set of instincts and feelings. But what we need help with is being able to process those feelings. And we learn to process them, not by being told we're not having them, but by putting them into words. And this is where the generational thing really comes into play is because I can imagine how if I hadn't done, luckily enough, all the therapy I'd done before I became a mum, I absolutely would not be able to bear my children's feelings because I couldn't bear my own. If you can't bear your own feelings, to take on another layer of someone so close to you is very, very difficult. I think we need to make friends with feeling sad, feeling angry, and these types of feelings that maybe we weren't encouraged to put into words, we were encouraged to sit on or not have. And the trouble is, if you're encouraged to sit on sadness or sit on anger, you press it down and that becomes unprocessed feelings, which becomes depression. Depression, If your mum says to you or your dad says to you you seem very sad today can we talk about that what's happening for you and they say my best friend isn't talking to me anymore and you go oh that must feel awful rather than rushing to fix 
because we love our children to be happy. We always want to fix them, fix them. But paradoxically, again, the way to fix isn't to fix. It's to feel with them so they don't feel daft for feeling sad that friend isn't talking to them anymore. We know that they're not worried about paying the mortgage, which we might be. So we think, well, that's nothing compared to what I've got on my plate. My friend not talking to me and I can't afford this month's rent or whatever it is. But their feelings for them are just as big as your feelings are for you. And they deserve just as much honouring. It's okay to be sad. You just want someone alongside you. When you are sad, you don't want to be alone in your sadness. So if we can bear our own sadness, then we can bear our kids being sad too. And then sadness stays as sadness and doesn't become depression. I just feel like this is one of the most important, if not the most important things that parents can do. Because don't we think we're taught, right, as society, that if we can push our feelings away, they go away. And my experience is that they absolutely don't. My first kind of warning bells were physical illnesses, actually, and then became mental health illnesses. So do you see, like, clearly we are in a mental health pandemic. That's probably the bigger pandemic than coronavirus. Do you think how much of that is linked to what was going on in the 80s and 90s, which was all that push feelings down, seen, not heard, time out, naughty step parenting? I don't know, but it's so helpful if you do get the skills early on about being able to put your feelings into words. I mean, I'm managing quite well after 25 years of therapy to be sad and to be frustrated with being locked down, for instance, and be sad about the people I've lost to coronavirus without going bonkers. But if I didn't know how to process those feelings, then I would go bonkers. And I think one feeling that we have the most difficulty with in processing for our children is anger. So we don't like it when the kid throws the toys out of the pram because we have to pick the toys up. So obviously we don't like it. So we tend to tell them off for being angry rather than give them better ways of expressing their anger. We want them to be socialised, yes, but so we want them to be able to express their anger rather than act out their anger. And it's great if adults can do this too. And I did this for my daughter. If I was getting angry rather than be angry, I'd say, oh, I can feel myself getting angry and I don't like it. You know, I'd just explain what was going on with me. So I'd keep doing this. And, of course, she was a four-year-old, so she'd keep being angry how she was angry, like shouting or crying or having a tantrum or whatever. And then once when I said that something wasn't possible, that she wanted to be possible, she looked at me and said, I'm going to get very angry in a minute like that. And I just thought, that is brilliant. She's telling me how she feels. That is so good. And I go, yeah, it's really frustrating, isn't it? I can understand how you feel. So we are learning there that you can talk about your anger, that it's acceptable to be angry, that it's okay to be angry, and how to show your anger. So you don't get a tantrum then when they're a bit older, which is quite nice. (laughs) But what, of course, you do have to accept is that they might be saying something that you don't want to hear. And it's really important to realize that they will see the world differently to how you see the world. And we've got to learn how to deal with difference rather than try and make them think the same as you. 
Yeah, I had an example of this recently where my early school life was challenging and I remember feeling alone a lot at school. And my little five-year-old, as of yesterday, just started school. And I say, who did you play with today? She'd say, no one. I just sat on the bench on my own because no one wanted to play with me. And, wow, like the triggers, the pain, the memories. But, you know, Philippa, I was so bloody grateful because I was aware of it. Yeah. I didn't put that onto her. I didn't say, well, you need to make friends. And I said, how do you feel when you're sitting on the bench? And she went, mummy, I love it. So, <laughs> so busy and I just get to sit on the bench and take a minute which is something I would say let's take a minute yeah. so she's mirroring yeah. my language and yeah. I said to her darling I think that sounds fantastic god I felt bloody proud of myself because I hadn't shamed her you need to make friends what you're doing is wrong but I noticed the capacity to do that was yeah. so on the tip <laughs> of my tongue it was like so what you had is a reflex yeah. Then rather than acting on the reflex, you thought about it and then you chose how you responded to that rather than just having the reaction of, oh my God, how awful. You then she'd think, was it awful? Oh, that's awful. So that's an awful feeling when she actually had a good feeling. Yeah. And she's really sensitive to the world. And I suspect what she found for her little self was a brilliant coping tool, little sanctuary. It very loud in the playground, lots going on and the little bench is a bit tucked away. And I suspect she was just processing what was going on. She knows how to self-regulate already. She knows when she's getting overstimulated and needs to calm down a bit. And she's learned that in relationship with you. I hope so. That'd be awesome. I wanted to ask you about the inner critic or the inherited critic, as I think you talk about it, because so often as parents or just people, right, we have this narrative in our heads, which is so cruel and so unkind. And almost every mother that I talk to and work with has it. And I think, again, we should write this on posters and it should be taught in NCT classes because we think that's not harmful to our children well I don't like myself I mean to myself but I love them I love them but actually and this is painful to hear I know for a lot of people we pass our inner voices onto our children can you talk to that because I think it's really important I was looking in the mirror and not liking what I saw when my daughter was about 10 or 11 I was going oh this bit's too much and that's too wrinkly and that bit's too fat you know how we do when we're looking at ourselves in the mirror and she said mommy I don't like it when you do that and I remember my mother doing exactly the same thing wow I'm just passing it on and I didn't like it either but I didn't say that I didn't like it because I hadn't learned how to say things that were negative in a way that she could take because I never learned it so So she gave me that feedback. But if we are horrible to ourselves, our kids somehow pick it up by osmosis that it's okay to be horrible to yourself. And so it is important to keep the critical voice in check. You can't stop it. You can't stop a voice going, didn't deal with that very well, or I'm no good, I'm useless, nobody wants to talk to me. All these sort of funny little messages we have inside our heads it's important that when we have a message like I'm no good or something like that we go oh look there's the critical voice again I can just put that on one side we'll still have the messages we can just have a different relationship to those messages 
There's a sort of therapy called Gestalt therapy, and it talks about the critical voice in terms of top dog. And underdog. So the top dog will say, you're too fat, you shouldn't have cake to you. And your underdog will go, I'm just going to have it. <laughs> and you have this sort of fight going on in your head. You don't need that dynamic internally because when you've got that internally somehow it starts happening externally in your world so we all have an inner critic we all have a top dog and the important thing is to observe those messages rather than be them it's so profound isn't it how you know and you say it I think it's right at the start of the book that the most important thing we can do as a parent is to look at our own stuff first because that's what I'm hearing everything that we're touching on it's like actually our children are there just kind of these little beings needing connection needing security we will have got a lot of good stuff from our own parents look we're still alive they must have done something a lot right yeah yeah so there's a lot that we got that was good but I just think it's a good idea to unpack it So we don't pass the less good stuff down. And hopefully then our kids will become more instinctively better parents than we are. These things take a lot of generations. So we might have to be aware of the critical voice and think, oh, okay, that's the critical voice. I don't want to have that. So I'm just going to observe that I'm having it, but not act on it. So it might tell me I'm no good, but I'm going to act as though I am okay. I'm not going to let it rule my life. Then you get into the habit of being okay, and then your kids pick up that habit of being okay from you. And they can do that without doing the work of, oh, I'm watching my inner critic. And I'm sure that our parents, probably with the you know, advantages that they had, might have been kinder parents than their parents were. It just takes a few generations to get rid of that children should be seen and not heard. Children aren't really proper people. They shouldn't be allowed to join in. Those sort of very old messages, because the thing is about children should be seen or not heard, is that we don't have a great line that we cross once we become 18 of, I'm an adult now. I'm a different person. We are the same person. So if you have that negative messages as, oh, nobody wants to hear what I've got to say because nobody did when we were growing up, you take that with you as an adult. You don't suddenly unlearn it age 18. And this is the blueprinting that you talk about. And what I find so exciting and petrifying (laughs) is that I'm blueprinting particularly those first five years, I'm blueprinting how my girls will navigate future relationships, their future... And they'll see all of your world. So the way you react to them, they'll take on as a blueprint for this is how the world responds to me because it's the whole of their experience. They'll go to nursery and they'll go, oh, this is how boys are like, this is what girls are like, this is what teachers are like. And they'll meet other people. And it's so complicated and so rich, all the influences, all the stories they hear and what they watch on telly and the games they play all form them. People say, I don't understand why two children are so different. They had the same upbringing. They didn't. Because a naturally introverted child will experience 
their environment very differently from a naturally extroverted child. So it's all about the individual relationships each child has with their environment that forms them. Yeah, and I remember learning, I can't remember whether it was from you or from someone else, about children are actually in a different brainwave up to the age of seven. They're in this kind of theta brainwave. They're absorbing everything differently than we do as adults. And they're in that ego state, as you described. So it's not like mummy's cross because the oven's broken. It's like mummy's cross at me, with me. I've done something wrong. I think it's very scary to think that we're not in control of our world or our parents aren't in control of their world. So it's much easier to go, mummy's angry because I'm bad, because then you have the power not to be bad, even though you find whatever you do, she's Mm -hmm. still angry. So that's how kids talk to themselves. So when parents split up, for instance, kids can think it's their fault. Because if you're not in this ego state, as it were, it's just too scary to think that you haven't got control over what happens to you. That's something we take on that, no, certain things are out of our control, but we don't like to think that too young. So if everything's bad, you can take it in on yourself and think it's your fault when you're little. Yeah. And like you say, no one can do this perfectly, right? No one can. Throw perfect out of the window. I think authentically is a good thing to aim for because then you're not messing up with your kids' instincts. So if you don't put on a sort of, I always get a little bit unnerved when people put on very sweet, sickly voices for their kiddies. (laughs) Oh, darling, everything's like roses and sunflowers. And I think, oh, my God, what is that doing to a kid's instinct? So I think authenticity is good. But also, along with that, of course, we need a certain amount of containment. So it's sort of like you're concerned because your kid has cut their knee, say, but you don't want to get as hysterical as they are, even though you might feel a bit of that. So it's sort of like this hurts very much now, but it's going to get better. So it's reassuring, but not sugarcoating. It's a fine line all the time. It's hard. We'll get it wrong. It's really hard. It's really hard, particularly if, particularly if we weren't modelled it. That's what I find really tricky. Sometimes I feel like there's me, there's the two girls, and then there's my inner child that I'm trying to soothe at the same time. And it's like, oh, my God, there's so many levels in any given interaction. But authenticity plus kindness is good. And also responding to what's in front of you in the present rather than responding to old you in the past. How does someone begin to unpack that? I think if in response to your child, you get a very charged emotion, then I think that is a hint and a clue that that charge belongs in the past and not the present. What happened to you when you put wax crayon on the walls? Did your mother come up to you and go, oh dear, walls aren't for painting on. Here, here's some paper, papers for painting on. Or did your mother have such a fit and a screaming fit that you've still got some old trauma in you about that, that when you see your kid doing the same thing, you don't want to feel that old trauma, so you feel rage instead. So note the charged emotion. And if you've got particularly charged emotion of fear, anger, or whatever it is, you know when you've got a charge, like it's an obsession, you don't want to let go of it, that belongs in the past. That'll be a past thing. It won't be a present thing. 
there's so many amazing stories in the book. Can you share a story that illustrates that? Well, there's one of the stories in the book is of a bloke who came to see me, who I call in the book Mark, and he had a two-year-old and he was not enjoying his life. He said, I'm not really cut out for this family stuff. I don't really like it. I think I'll leave. And I go, well, this is interesting because you were fine up until your kid was two. He said, well, it wasn't a picnic, but it's just got too much for me now. I can't deal with it. And I said, what happened to you when you were two? went, nothing, nothing. He goes, no, tell me about it. Tell me what was happening. What was in your family then? Just tell me about it. And he said, well, my mum was absolutely brilliant. She'd always be with me. She never pushed me away. She was great fun. I go, what about your dad? He went, oh, he left when I was two. I went, oh, how do you feel about that? I said, oh, it was fine. It's fine. Okay. Did you ever see your dad after that? No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. So you had a dad in your life and then he left when you were two. He said, oh, I can't remember any of it. Just cannot remember. So, you know, my mum's great. So, you know, I had a great childhood. So when did you see your dad again? He said, well, he sort of lost touch, really. How did you feel about that? Fine. Can't remember. I just kept going. How did you feel about that? I go, what would it be like if you were angry about that? Can you sort of get in touch with a bit of that anger? And he just burst into tears. And he sobbed and he sobbed and he raged and he raged. And I go, I said, I was feeling so tense and now I feel so much better. I feel really sad for you. And I feel very sad for that little boy that was left by his dad. Another thing, he told me later, another thing that was funny was that his dad left him. Not only did Mark's dad leave him, but Mark's dad's dad left him. So this was going to be passed down to a third generation if Mark hadn't had the wherewithal to think, I just think I'll go to therapy and unpack this for a bit just to see what's happening. He knew something was a bit weird about it, which is why he went to therapy. And the other thing that happened, he was fed up with his girlfriend because she was always putting their son first before him. That made him furious as well. He was like another sort of sibling. But when he got in touch with what happened to him when he was two, he had much more attention because his child was a trigger to those feelings that he was so carefully blocking up. He had much more attention and availability to give his son. So then his girlfriend could get interested in other things and could become more of herself again because he was doing some of the watching of his son. And so, you know, although they're just an ordinary family, he's not running away from himself. So he doesn't have to run away from them. So he can be there and feel with his son and empathize with his son. Whereas before his son was getting to be an it, I don't like it, meaning the life he had when he was there. And it got worse because the more he withdrew, the more his girlfriend concentrated on their son to look after him. And then the more he felt he was pushed away. But it was only once when he was pushed away. And that's when he really was pushed away, when when his dad left. And his dad might have felt like that because his dad had left him. Yeah, and that so nearly would have been that little boy's story as well. So close. And yet, what a clever thing he did. He came to a workshop I was giving about something else. I think it was at the School of Life or something. And he just sort of stayed behind and chatted about this. And I said, hmm, I think you should come and see me. You say in the book, if you find yourself wanting a break from your child all the time, what you probably need 
is a break from the feelings they trigger in you. That's true. Yeah. Because it is a lot of adjustment going from being one to two and then two to three and then three to four, you know, you know, when it's so massive. And sometimes you do need a bit of me time to sort of process it all and find out who you are again. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking about wanting one night out a week to, to go to the cinema with your friend. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when all the time you feel like pushing away, pushing away, pushing away, but you're probably pushing your young self away. Because it might not have been such a clear-cut thing like what happened to Mark. It might have been a time you don't even consciously remember, like when your father was depressed or something. Kids do pick up on our moods, even if we try and hide them from them. So I think it's much better to go, I'm really sad because my auntie's died, rather than pretend everything's fine. There's a thing in the book when I made that mistake and I pretended everything was fine when it wasn't. And the nursery school teacher took me to one side and said, my daughter's called Flo. Flo's very upset because her goldfish died. And I thought, uh, we've never had a goldfish. Um, what's going on? And then I said, I think I know what's happened. My aunt's died and I'm a bit distracted and I'm a bit sad. So... I said to Flo on the way home, you know, I just told her I have been distracted. I have been sad. I'm sorry. I haven't been as available to you as I normally am. You know, she's only two. She's not even listening, you know, but I feel I have to say it. But we had no more sadness with the goldfish because she has an explanation. We sometimes think kids are too young, but they're never too young to take on some sort of explanation. So, for instance, if you get something ghastly like cancer, I think it's better to say, Mummy is ill, I'm going to have some treatment and I hope I'll get better. So they can process it along the way rather than, I hear so many people who come to see me as a therapist because mum was there one minute and then died because they hadn't been kept abreast with the process. So what you're going through, I think you need to keep abreast with it. So if you're arguing your partner or something, I don't think you should scream at each other in front of the kid, no. But I think they'll sense an atmosphere and sense if something's going on. So I think it's as well as like, we're just trying to sort a few things out. Sorry if it's all a bit tense around here. And then they know it's not them because they'll think it's them. Yeah, that's the thing. And I remember doing that as a child. Like children fill in the gaps, don't they? Just like Flo did and just like I did. You know, I remember that feeling of something's off in my house. I couldn't label it. I had no idea. And I actually made up that it was me. You know, and that's taken me a long time to mm. unpack and unlearn and recover from. It really yeah. has. And I just imagine like, gosh, if my mum and dad, amazing as they were, gosh, so amazing. And like you said, they did so much right. Yeah. I mean, it's not oh, not helpful to look back, but had even just been like, yeah, things are a bit off. This is what's going on. I can see the profound impact that would have had on me. Yeah how profound that would have been. I mean, even when I was a teenager, they kept things from me. I think it's this thing about wanting our kids to be happy the whole time, which is a marvellous idea, but it's just not realistic and it doesn't really help. Like they had a friend who had cancer and recovered from it, but it was all sort of kept as a great big secret and hush hush. And then I came in when these friends were there full of the news that somebody else had got cancer and I talked about it and I said how upset they all were and I was just sort of going through 
And all four of the adults were sort of stony silence. And I just thought, oh, maybe you're not supposed to talk about cancer. Oh, maybe I shouldn't. Oh, dear. You know, thinking, there was I being spontaneous and, you know, wanting to process what I just heard. And they just didn't know what to do with it because they kept a secret from me, which I found out later. And then I thought, oh, that made sense. But at the time, I was in one of those situations that wasn't making sense. And, of course, I brought it back to, I shouldn't do that, even though I was nearly an adult by that time. I was a young teenager, you know. Yeah, it's so much unlearning, isn't it? That's sometimes what I think parenting is kind of about in that bigger picture. It's like, actually, how much can I unlearn so that then I can give them something different than I had and they won't have to do that unlearning? I had Gabor Marty on the podcast and he said the most important thing of parenting is self-parenting. Yeah, you do have to look after yourself, but not at their expense. Look after yourself so that you can put on your own oxygen mask so you can put on their oxygen mask, you know. It's not put on their, your own oxygen mask so they die of oxygen. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. I think there's a risk of a pendulum around yeah. self-care for parents, isn't there? I wanted to ask you, about Kate Middleton's work that she's doing at the moment around the importance of the early years and zero to five. And I just was so curious that if you were in charge of the government budget around mental health and early years, what would you do differently than we currently have in our society? Well, we were going in the right direction with all the Sure Start centres which provided support to parents so they could learn how to be with their kids, how to play with their kids, you know, what was okay, what wasn't okay. And they were great, actually. Parents do need support, and they were a great support. And I think it's a false economy to cut services like that because cut services like that, and what happens is that, Parents haven't got support. Parents get frustrated. And the people that suffer are the children, which, because they're between 0 and 5, does tend to make them more susceptible to mental health problems later on. So parents need support to support their kids. And I think if I was going to do anything, I'd have a lot of support in place for parents so that they can parent, so they feel helped. I mean, traditionally, this was done by families, but we follow the money. So all families are spread out all over the globe. You might not have your mother living next door or your sister at the end of the garden. So people need to be able to access support, access groups, access parenting groups so they can peer support I mean, I found things like the Leche League, which was a parenting support group, invaluable when I had my daughter. From the beginning, we had a leader. And then after six sessions, she said, you lot are all right on your own now. And then we kept on meeting for years as a group. Wow. What's so interesting is you bring in that societal element, you know, the fragmentation and, you know, many mothers living in urban areas where they don't know anyone on the street. And then we're seeking our, that connection that we so need at arguably the loneliest time in our lives with our phones. The painful thing about that is the impact that that then unwittingly can have on our children. I know you have really, really strong views on this. Can you talk a bit to 
Well, I have news. I'm not going to say they're strong, but I think they're quite strong. Okay. I think we're dying for connection all the time. And so our phones are absolutely gorgeous. But if our kid sees us prioritizing again and again and again our phone over them, they'll be in danger of being addicted to phones rather than getting their sense of connection from other people, which I think is healthier than getting it from a popping bubble game. So by all means, play with your phone. You're going to need to because of a feeling of connection, but do it when the kids are asleep and seek connections in real life. I think this year for a new mother or a mother of a toddler must have been incredibly hard. When I had a baby one o'clock clubs with yeah. all the local mums and sometimes I'd go to one of these groups every day because I hadn't got my work group anymore so all those people I used to meet every day they'd gone they were at work they were in that world I wasn't there so I used to meet a group in the library I used to meet a one o'clock group the Leche League group I had all my lovely groups where I met my friends and you know the babies all gurgled sometimes because the children were so demanding, in a two-hour group, you'd be lucky if you got 10 minutes conversation with someone, but that 10 minutes would sustain you, you know? Yeah. And I feel without that, this year must be so hard. And of course, we'll be relying on our mum's WhatsApp group, but let's do it when the kids don't need us. What is fun about being in a group, you know, with a nine-month-old babies all crawling about the place they needed our attention the whole time. Had we been meeting on the phone, how could we have that sort of company of, we just have eye contact in that situation when you're soothing a crying child or nursing or whatever you're doing, playing with, because they really want you right now. You still got that eye contact with the other mothers. You still got that sort of kinship going on that you can't get online. What would you say to a, a new mum. I guess I am one. I've got just one year old. So I've had her that whole first year through this pandemic. It has been really, really lonely. What would you say to you? Nice. (laughs) (laughs) I would probably say that I've done a remarkable job, actually, given how hard it's been. Have you felt isolated? At times, yeah. And also at times I've noticed my work addiction coming up. Because I've kept working throughout and I've really battled with that actually because I haven't been able to go out to play groups with her. I haven't been to classes and it's just her and I sat at home. And then, you know, when work comes up, I'm like, oh yeah, I'll do that because it's stimulating and it's interesting. I'm like, no, because it's taking me away from the one place I really have to be, which is just sat on that floor, bored out my brain on my own because I haven't been able to have people in for play dates. The summer was fine. Winter's hard. Like I went for a walk because, you know, we, we can be outside walking around. Yeah. I was so cold. I couldn't feel my toes. I was like, I can't do this again. Like this. Yeah. So I think I would probably, and I have been saying to myself consistently, actually, that, you know, good enough is good enough. And I've done a good job. And to allow, as you were sharing earlier, actually, I've been practicing allowing myself sitting with the anger and the sadness and the frustration and the grief that her first year is so different than I wanted it to be. And just allowing all that in and a shitload of therapy that I've been having have all really helped. Um, I think like you say, it's been incredibly challenging. 
really challenging. I mean, you might think play group, they're not important to me, but then when you haven't got it, oh, they are. They really are. That kind of over milky cup of tea and stale biscuit, I miss more yeah. than I can say, really. Yeah. Just the fact somebody else is making you a cup of tea is bloody amazing. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Never mind what it looks like. Well, the last question that I did tell you I was going to ask you yeah. is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? When you say that, I actually feel a bit tearful. I don't know why, because the first thing that came to my head is I'd give them confidence in their loving instinct. Confidence, confidence, confidence. And forgiveness, self-forgiveness especially. Confidence and forgiveness. We'll cock up, forgive yourself bloody immediately. What came up for you with that emotion? I I just felt I want people to be confident. We're animals. We can do this. Just have the confidence to follow your mammalian instincts. Sometimes a lamb does reject a baby. You know, sometimes we do have difficult feelings. And unlike lambs, we can seek psychological help for that sort of thing. So, you know, these things can happen and you'd never choose to do that. So if something like that happens, it's to do with your past trauma. It's not your fault. Forgiveness and confidence that you can do this. That's beautiful. Thank you. I do love mothers and I do love kids. And I just love that bond. I'm saying mothers, I mean parents. I think fathers can feel it just as much as mothers can. And if you were going to say something back to your younger self when Flo was, I don't know, five or so, which is where I am now, what would you say? Oh dear, I don't like the message that came up into my head straight away so much, which is this too will pass. (laughs) because some playing talking dolly can go on for hours and hours and it needs to and it is boring sometimes and we get over the boredom by being curious by thinking about what it's like from their point of view there's all sorts of things I've written about them in my book but sometimes it's still boring and it's still long it feels long but oh my god it goes quick it's weird it's the longest time and the shortest time now my daughter's 28 I'd give a thousand pounds to get bored out of my skull playing Lego on the mat again. Oh, <laughs> it's such a beautiful reminder to be present. Yeah, it's lovely. Be it present because it will pass. This too will pass. Will pass. So make the most of it. Oh, well, thank you, Philippa. It's been an absolute delight. I've loved connecting. Hopefully next time I'll get to see you speak in an auditorium with other people oh, around us. Well, maybe we could go for a coffee. Woo! <laughs> In that real was, life, that was Team Lego as well. <laughs> Maybe I could bounce a baby on my knee. I'll bring both of them. Oh, it'd be lovely. I babysat a friend's grand, because my kids I have access to now are grandkids. I babysat a friend's grandkid, and I was a stranger to him, and he actually cried for two hours while I tried to soothe him. Oh, dear, an awful lot of patting and walking and... Anyway, I tried my best. I was with him the whole time and he just settled down nicely when granny and mummy returned. And then they're, oh, you've done so well. He's so happy. I thought, oh my God, (laughs) you've no idea. Anyway, you know, in the back of the hardback of my book, there's a photograph of me in it. And his mum has got this book. And every night he wants this book now. 
every night and he goes to all the patients going, where is woman? Where is woman? No. Then he gets to my picture and he goes, there is woman. I mean, he's only met me once. He said, yeah, there is woman. There is woman. <laughs> and during lockdown, I've been making him little videos of sort of showing him the room going, where is woman? Where is woman? And they go, there is woman. And apparently he really likes them. So this is my contact that I'm having with kids at the moment. It is by video. It's very sad that it's like that, but that's the way it is. But uh, where is woman? And his mother gets furious because she, she's got all these lovely picture books and yet he wants that. The woman. He wants the woman. Where's woman? Where is woman? Oh my God, I, just, um, I think he must have had quite a traumatised time when I babysat him. But his mother really did need to have two hours in the bath. So. Mm. Oh, what a gift. What a gift. <laughs> you saved her. My word, my word. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight. I knew it would be, uh, but it's... Well, it's goodbye it's from woman. Bye, bye, woman. <laughs> woman is now going. Bye. Bye. So that was the episode. I hope that you really enjoyed it. As ever, if you did, please consider sharing it with your friends and leaving me a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference to the number of mums that we can reach with the brilliant wisdom of the guests I have on. Also, just a reminder about the Family Reset Plan. It's my latest offering to parents. I think that we are living in probably the challenge of our lifetimes. Well, definitely so far. And as parents, we not only have to support ourselves, we also have to support our children. And that is a lot. So the Family Reset Plan is myself and two brilliant psychologists and we give you step-by-step, simple, applicable ways that you can support yourself emotionally to feel stronger, calmer, and therefore to support your children in a different way. It's all grounded in psychology and neuroscience. It's just £25 currently. And if you work for the NHS, it is totally free for you. So check out the website, familyresetplan.co.uk. Take care. I'll see you next time. Hi, I'm Lauren. And I'm Nicole. And if you enjoy this show, you will love our podcast, Self Care Club. Every week, we trial a different form of self care and report back on the results. We've tried everything from cuddle therapy, setting boundaries, laughter yoga, and many more. Two friends who rarely agree on anything, testing out the world of self care so you don't have to. We've even written a book dedicated to self care practices that cost you nothing. You can listen to Self Care Club wherever you get your podcasts. Or to purchase our book, search Have You Tried This on Amazon.